Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Dustin Pendle, Dr. Bob Larson, and Dr. Brian Lubers. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning. Morning. Dr. Lubers has been on with us before. He he does uh, food animal therapeutics here at Kansas State. Is veterinarian has good experience in that background. So we look forward to his input on several topics because we're going to talk today some about research and a little bit about what the USDA funding program has funded recently, as well as answer a listener question related to, uh, it's a good question because it's very frequent, should I raise my own heifers or should I purchase replacement heifers? Brian's going to share with us some information on generics as we see new generic antimicrobials coming onto the market. Some are already there and we'll see more in the future as well as discussing deworming, when and where should we do it. Before we get into those topics, a couple things I wanted to address. One, uh, the U.S. Cattle Trace Program, which is was a collaboration of the Kansas Department of Ag, the Kansas State University, Kansas Livestock Association, several private organizations, has really expanded. It's moved beyond Kansas, and it's actually now a national program with involvement from several other states, including Texas, as well as others, and it has received recently received some support from Tyson, uh, showing really the importance of animal disease traceability in the beef industry. So I think that's a great program. If you're interested at all, if you just Google U.S. Cattle Trace, you can come across their website. There are ways to be a producer member. Uh, we've also got a, a podcast episode where we talked to Callahan Grund, who is the executive director of Cattle Trace. So I thought that was interesting. The other topic I'd like to discuss briefly, and Dustin, I want to get your input on, we had a, a kind of a side discussion last week talking about things post-COVID as we come out of COVID. And we were debating internally, do you think people are going to go out to eat less now that we've been eating at home pretty frequently? Or is there a rebound effect where you think people are going to go out and start going out to eat more? What are your thoughts, Dustin? Oh, uh, that's a great question. I don't know that I've got the... Uh probably the correct answer, but I've got my own thoughts. Uh, I suspect, you know, people were at home for quite a while, uh, learning how to cook, maybe with more than just maybe ground beef. And so some people, we might start to see a little more of that. Some people that may have taken with, it did not take with us. Uh, my son and I last night tried to cook fried potatoes and apparently high and hot is not what you want when you're trying to cook fried potatoes. Two pans, unless, two pans later, we had to, we, we did like, have a solution. Unless you like crispy fried potatoes. I kind of do like crispy fried potatoes, but that, that uh, it didn't turn out super well. And, we, and then you got to dispose of the evidence before, say, other people get home. Yeah. Well, I, you know, one of the things, as, as things open up more, though... Um, we certainly, like everyone, you know, we did a lot more meals at home. But now that, you know, my my daughter's back having track meets and other school activities and our evenings are getting compressed again. I mean, some of the reasons that we go out to eat are, you know, the wife's coming home from work. I'm coming home from work. we got a kid activity in a half an hour or an hour. And it's just easier to let someone else cook and clean up. And, yep. and so I, I think there's some of that that just comes with the more uh, activity. I mean, so part of the reason people go out to eat is to have a nice evening and to do something special. But part of it is a convenience issue. Yeah, it's quick. It's quick and it's easy. And I think it 
I think we'll see that come back to a degree because there is a, a big convenience factor. So it'll be interesting to watch. And Dustin, we'll ask you for some numbers in the future to see to see how much that bounced back. One, one of the other topics that I wanted to address, and, and you guys have been part of different programs. So the, the USDA has several programs related to uh, animal agriculture and funding animal health research. And, and I think it's interesting to see, and recently they just funded several projects looking at uh, animal reproduction as well as animal well-being. And some of those are pretty interesting, but I wanted to talk about the, the kind of the program in general and get you guys' perspective on what are the values of a program like that of funding developments in animal ag research? I'll start because I, you know, I've, I've applied for USDA funding and I've served on USDA review panels. So I've seen what other people apply. And I think one of the big values and not, not all of the USDA programs are this way, but the USDA can have a perspective where they can fund higher risk, higher reward type projects, uh, things that maybe private industry isn't going to invest money into because it's just such a long shot. And so, you know, the USDA can, can have that kind of really far forward approach to, to research and things that may or may not work out. But if they do, they really are going to change an industry. So that, that's been one of my perspective on their, on their funding. Yeah, it's interesting. The, you know, the balance of needing to meet some identified needs um, and then uh, and, and allocating some money to people that have some good ideas to address some immediate needs that we kind of know about. And like what you were saying is kind of a little less clear what the, the, the risk or the demand is, but to take a little bit more of a, a risk with the questions that you ask. And, and as a funding agency, they, they kind of need to balance both. You know, they need to, to funnel some money towards some specific questions that we know we need answered and some that are, uh, that, that we don't, that are a little bit farther out. And, and I think a good mix, and you're never going to make everybody happy. But a good mix of those two kind of concepts is really important for the for the federal funding agencies. Well, a lot of our understanding of wh whether it's reproduction or animal health and back to the concepts is driven by projects like that. Right? It's not just extension type projects where what it is. And, and that's what you're talking about, Brian, too, is not the novel research that's on the cutting edge. It sometimes doesn't always work out is still worth evaluating through some of these projects. Dustin, what's your perspective? Uh, so like Brian, I've been involved in research proposals. I've funded, non-funded, uh, been on the backside, you know, reviewing research. And I think it's great that the USDA, I'm gonna take even a step back a little further, but the USDA invests in research. Uh, what's interesting, there's a whole, even a whole set of literature that looks at you know, the USDA investing in ag and all the uh, kind of the payouts, if you will, across time. And that might even be for maybe a different topic uh, in the future. But I, I think it's great that they do invest in ag and, and or just invest in research, I guess, in general, trying to help, you know, push not only the U.S. forward, but maybe globally uh, on various issues. Well, I think, and great point, because if you think about what most of us do every day, we do the things to keep your ranch running. You do the things to for your day-to-day -day business. 
and research is really looking for that next step. How do, how do we do things better? And often you, you don't have time to do that unless there's a specific research plan. And the cool thing about this program, I mean, we talk about applying for grants and I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it this way, you, you have to put a lot of thought into that and a lot of work into the plan before it gets funded. And then you have a group of scientists that review it and say, does it make sense or not? And going through that process itself is painful, but in, in general, that's a good process and a good way to make sure that the grants that are funded have a good chance of success. So I, I think that's an interesting program. If you're interested, you can, you can Google the uh, USDA and there's a, a program that's called NIFA, N-I-F-A, and that is the National Institute for Food and Agriculture. And they, they fund these programs. So there's lots of good information there and you'll see a lot of that information come out. Oh, I do wanna shift gears because we had a great question from a listener and, and we, we talked a little bit about heifers before, but we didn't really delve into the economics of should I raise my own or should I go purchase them? And, and I wanna get you guys perspective. Well, there's, there's a lot of issues in this realm and it's a good thing we've got uh, Dr. Pendle here to talk about. So there's an economic question, you know, costs and benefits of different options. There's a biosecurity standpoint and then there's a, can you find the genetics? But there's some, one of the things and I've, I've looked at this question a lot over times and, and, um, and, and I'm getting, I don't know, lazier, more, more time constrained or whatever, because the more I can make, so let me, let me give you one perspective, a cow-calf operator that just wants to keep things pretty simple. So I market calves at one time a year, uh, be that at weaning or after a backgrounding phase or something like that. Um, and I can really sync up my, my nutrition with my available forages. And I don't have heifers that are at a different stage of life than the rest than my adult cows. And there's some real advantages of buying heifers from someplace else to keep everything really simple. I don't have you know, a group of heifers that I start and then I sell some of them prior to breeding and another group of heifers after preg check and another, you know, and my calves. And so every time I add a marketing group, a group of animals that fit a weight or pregnant or not pregnant, well, I've just increased the amount of time and effort I have to place into the marketing of my animals versus just marketing feeder calves. Uh, so I'm going to say that one of the advantages of buying replacement heifers is now I have a very streamlined marketing system for selling my cattle. But I'm going to, but I, I, I also know the, the negatives of that idea. Yeah, I think uh, I'm just going to talk about the costs and the benefits as Bob mentioned. There's a lot of things that just go into that, right? I mean, you need to stop and think about for example, feed costs. What are the, the feed costs? Are prices of feed high? You know, because you're raising your own versus going out purchasing heifers. Uh, even labor, labor costs or, or, and or availability. Do you have labor that if you're trying to uh, raise a whole bunch of uh, replacement heifers? Uh, understanding the price, uh, even an availability of the replacement heifers. Uh, you know, you got tax implications you need to think about. Uh, cash flow needs. Right. If you're going to purchase a whole bunch of heifers versus raising them, there's a lot of things that go into, at least just from a cost and benefits perspective, uh, when thinking about 
you know, should you purchase or should you raise your own heifers? And I think, I think one of the things I'll jump on there, Dustin, is you talked about labor costs. There is some difference based on efficiencies, right? So if, if I'm saving three heifers for my herd, it's going to cost me almost as much in time as if I was saving 20 heifers or 25 heifers. I mean, the time it takes to feed them, check them, do some of those things. So, so there's a pretty big difference there too. Uh, if it's a hobby or a real economic decision, right? If it's a hobby, then, then two is probably fine. But if it's an economic decision, then you might want to make something different. And, and Brian, I know you, you mentioned, uh, some of the other issues r relative to even potentially biosecurity. Sure. I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of new to the podcast, but I'm sure you guys have discussed the advantages of, of having open herd systems and closed herd systems. And so, you know, it, it's, and there are certainly marketing channels where you have more assurance that you kind of know what would be coming into your herd. And there are testing strategies that you can do to, if you're really concerned about maintaining a certain pathogen-free status within your herd, there are things that you can do. Um, but certainly, if you're raising your own, then it's then it's a much more known factor, right? So you go into that with, hey, I know what's here, um, and I can be assured that I'm not changing the the pathogen load that my animals are going to be exposed to. Well, one of the things that I'm hearing is um, it's not a it's not an easy everybody should either buy their heifers or raise their heifers. It seems to be from an economic standpoint, from a health standpoint, uh, even from a labor and management standpoint, either I spend my time developing heifers or I spend my time finding and, and working with my supplier. Um, and so it's, I guess, as, as we look at it, would you guys agree with me that, that it's not a slam dunk? It's not an easy answer. Oh yeah, you should buy heifers or, oh yeah, you should raise your own heifers. It's a little more, um, more complicated than that and there might be correct answers that are very different for different producers i think that last thing that you said is very valuable bob so there could be correct answers that are opposite of each other and one's right for me and one's right for you and, and i think if there's a, a take home here we want to be sure that you know your costs and time going forward because i think sometimes when we raise our own heifers it's easy to not track those costs as well and i've certainly done that right you purchase feed that you're using for the cows but then i'm going to use some of that for the heifers and where do i attribute those costs it's pretty easy to let it slide and say well it didn't really cost me very much to to raise them but it did it did have a cost associated with it so track it and that leads us to our cattle chat checklist for this week which are the top considerations when deciding to purchase or raise heifers for your herd. Our BCI Cattle Chat Checklist this week are the top factors to consider when deciding to purchase or raise heifers for your operation. Number six, understand the cash flow and tax implications. Number five, determine your biosecurity risks. Number four, know your overall costs. Number three, Evaluate the efficiencies of scale. How many will you raise? Will it be a few heifers or large groups of heifers? Number two, develop your genetic improvement plan. And number one, realize all the costs and benefits of raising 
versus purchasing heifers. And that's our BCI Cattle Chat Checklist for this week. Okay, Brian, I, w- I wanted to really address with you, I, we've had a lot of talk and I've had a couple questions recently because w- we've had generics or products that are produced by other companies that have come out onto the to the cattle market for a while. It's not new. Some of the, some of the products have been around for a while, but recently we see several new antimicrobials come out that would be generics. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what does that mean for my operation? Is that something I should consider? Is it something I should not consider? Are there things I should worry about? What do you think for for my ranch? Sure. Yeah, and we we're going to start seeing some more generics coming on the market. And I think I think a lot of people are familiar with generics, right? Just from their own personal use, right? When we, if I go to the physician, um, most of the time, if he's prescribing something for me, I'm likely getting a generic. And the and the advantages to generics are are obvious. It's cost, right? Generic products are uh, cheaper to purchase, and so uh, there's always a concern with that. You know, if they're cheaper, are they as good? Is there some reason why they're cheaper? Um, and the reason why generic drugs are cheaper is because the, the approval process that a drug will go through. So uh, if, if a drug manufacturer, a drug sponsor, wants their drug approved, they have to go through a process that's outlined by the FDA. And the process is slightly different for the generic drugs because we already have a lot of the information from what we call the pioneer product. So the brand name product that was originally approved that the generic is now copying. And, and there, are, there are several ways that a generic can get approved um, without making it too complicated. Um, they essentially have to be equivalent in the drug and the drug formulation that's in the bottle. That's, that's probably the easiest pathway. So um, and you can have generic drugs that are manufactured in the same facility as a pioneer product. And so if they're going through the same manufacturing process, it's the same drug in the bottle. Um, they can generally be approved pretty quickly as a generic. If it's not the same, uh, then, then the, the sponsor of the generic product, um, they have to show that the effects are equivalent. And one of the, one of the common questions that I get is, um, and it's, it's comes out several different ways, but one of the common myths is that a generic drug can have 80% of the drug that's in the pioneer product. And that 80% number comes from, uh, there, there is some regulation within the FDA. There's, if you have the pioneer product, um, not all animals will, absorb and metabolize every drug the same. And so even within animals, there's some variation in how much drug they're actually exposed to. And so what the, what the generic drug sponsor has to do, uh, they know what the variation for the pioneer product, and then there's some allowable variability within the generic, but to, to get it, to make it short, to get a generic drug approved, you really have to be very close to the same levels of drug, in the animals that you would see in the pioneer product and so so, so as we and i may the, the generic product the new product that has come out the pioneer product is the original that's the one that the that's company the did more, more research on 
they did the initial testing to say, does it work or does it not work? And so one of the reasons that generics are cheaper that I'm getting from you is not just because they're more cheaply made, it's because they don't have the research dollars invested to initially prove out that it worked. Is that accurate? That is true. So with the with that Pioneer product, the first product, um, they have to show both that the drug is effective, which you mentioned. They also have to show that it's safe for the animals that it's going to be used in. And if you are if you're a drug sponsor going through the generic approval process, you don't. If your drug is similar enough to that Pioneer product, that branded product, you don't have to go through those two sections. You you can say our drug is the same. And we're going to use the data that was originally established for the pine to show that the drug works and that the drug is safe. So is another quick oh, question ahead, for you. is another reason that the generics are maybe less expensive than the pioneer is when you create the pioneer, you get a patent maybe, and then you're the only one that can produce that to try to recoup, recapture your uh, research investment costs. And then once I Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. I don't know that the patent costs themselves are such that it's, it's the, it's that original testing to demonstrate efficacy and safety that carries the large cost burden for the pioneer. Um, but for, for a drug that's been approved as the original, the pioneer product, they are granted some marketing exclusivity to help recoup those costs. And so that's why, um, we see generics don't come on the market immediately after a, pro a, a Pioneer branded product has been approved. Um, those sponsors are given a period of time where they are allowed to recoup those before those expire and then the generics are allowed to be approved. And so as, as you think about that, that cost, and do you have a ballpark? I know there's no one cost. I'll put you on the spot a little bit. Because I've heard some ranges before about if I'm going to bring a new product to market, how much it costs. You you have a ballpark for that, Brian? I I can give you a really a really wide one, probably um, estimates for for a food animal product. So something because the food animal products have to go undergo testing for human food safety, right? So we have to establish withdrawal times and things like that. Um, it's it's several million dollars and probably eight to ten years from the time a company has identified a drug product, a target, to get through all of that testing and then the approval process. So it's a lot of dollars and it's a lot of time. Yeah. So so back to the generic, and, and it makes sense then why some of our, why we don't see a bunch of new products every year, because they spend a lot of time in development and some of those will fall out of the process, rightfully so, along the way because of some issue. Uh, but then as we see these generics come out, and, and you mentioned, so they should have the same bioequivalents or the same action in the animal as they come on the market. Um, any any thoughts on using those or switching from one to the other? From, in my opinion, the generics have been shown to be bioequivalent. They should be safe. They should be effective just as the Pioneer product. So I, I don't have any problems recommending those products that have gone through that process. I think the and that's, you know, the approval process is there to protect the people that are using those products. So um, I think you can move forward with generics with confidence. 
So don't so don't be surprised as those come on the market. And I think this is a great opportunity to talk to your veterinarian, especially because some of these products will be non-prescription. Some of them will be prescription. So talk to your veterinarian about what makes sense for your operation, because we can't see exactly what's going on at your place. So there may be some differences where they say, hey, we, we think this is the right plan, but that's why you have that veterinary client patient relationship. And, and I want to shift gears from generics. In fact, one of the first generics that I'm aware of that came out would have been in the deworming space. So as we think about dewormers, uh, this is the time of year and and a day like today, the sun's shining. You can just sit there and watch the grass grow. Well, we start thinking about parasites and especially internal parasites. And we're going to talk about external parasites. So I'm going to put those to the side for now, guys. And let's just talk about internal parasites, which is usually intestinal worms that we're concerned about in cattle. And what should I think about when I'm thinking about deworming? This is an area that has changed a lot in my career. First of all, the products have changed. Um, we've gotten probably a, a, a larger number and, and more effective products in my lifetime, uh, which is a great, great to have those tools. But we've also learned a lot. We've learned a lot from other species. Cattle, we haven't had as much problem with uh, resistance of those worms to our products yet. But we've seen in the horse world and in the uh, dog and cat world and in the sheep and goat world, maybe more than any other, that we need to be aware of the, the risk of these worms becoming resistant to our uh, deworming agents. And so probably we need to be not only thinking about how to use these dewormers to enhance the health of the cattle today, but how are we going to make sure that those products are going to be effective, you know, 10, 20 years from now. Uh, and so we have to balance those two thoughts um, in the, in a, in a, and I don't, don't misquote me here, but if I'm just worried about the animals today, I could use these products very aggressively, use them frequently, as long as I could afford it, um, that, that, that would be a, a strategy. But that would also be a strategy that would probably lead to the fact that those products wouldn't be very effective in 10 or 20 years. And so I need to balance those two things. Some of the same issues that we face with whether we talk deworming resistance, antimicrobial resistance, weed resistance in crop fields. I mean, they're all a lot the same issues, aren't they, Brian? Yeah. They're, I mean, at the base of it, they're whatever you're trying to get rid of has made a genetic modification that makes the product no longer effective. So I think when you get down to the very basic level, they're exactly the same. Um, the other issue with really all three of those areas, if we think about crops, parasites, and, and antimicrobials, is the new product development is not able to keep up with how quickly the organisms are changing. And, you know, for, for all of those uh, bacteria, parasites, weeds, they're able to reproduce very quickly in large, large numbers. And so that's why we see these very, can see very rapid changes in the genetic profiles of our pests, for lack of a better word. Um, we had Sarah Lancaster on a few weeks ago, and she talked about weed management and some of the resistance. And one of the quotes that she said that I remember was, uh, weeds just love bare dirt, right? They just love a vacuum or a void and jump in and fill it. And 
and to some degree, these other topics are similar, right? So if we try to create a vacuum, you, you don't have any control over what refills it. Is that is that what you were saying too, Bob? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that, and in, in talking to both veterinary students and beef producers, it's not my goal to get rid of all the parasites in the cattle. To you know, to have them completely, because we use words like clean them out or something like that, and that's actually not what I want. I, I want to have a population that is small enough, a population of parasites that's small enough that it's not causing much problem at all to the cattle. But that's different than saying I want no parasites at all. Um, and that, that's one of the things we've learned, that if your goal is to get rid of all parasites, you can do that for the short term, but it's going to come back and get you in the end as far as uh, some other problems later on. So it's really, uh, and we talk about this all the time on this podcast, optimization. I'm not trying to remove the maximum amount of parasites. I'm trying to optimize it. So kind of back to how we all got started on this, uh, these, these parasites that we're talking about, they live on grass. They do not live on dirt lots. And so cattle coming, if they've been on, um, you know, a corn stock field or they've been in a dry lot coming through the winter, they're pretty low parasite load right now, getting ready to go to grass. Uh, and so a lot of times we'll uh, deworm at a time. And again, so then I've got, I've got the cattle where I can handle them right now, but an ideal time, maybe actually a little bit farther down um, in a few weeks after they've already been on grass versus right now. Uh, but, and, and it, this is another area where different parts of the country have a different parasite load. Think the farther south you go, the more grazing days, the more, because parasites, these worms really like warm, moist environments. So Mississippi is very different than North Dakota. And here in Kansas, we're somewhere in between. But uh, the farther south you go, probably the more careful and aggressive you need to be with your deworming. And then the farther north you go and the drier cattle spread out more, probably the less frequent you need to think about deworming. But around Kansas, we typically talk about deworming uh, cows once or twice a year. Um, young animals, young growing stock, maybe a little bit more, but that's really geographically dependent. So if you go south and east, that's going to be different than if you go north and west. But spot on with your geography with Kansas being between North Dakota and yeah, Mississippi. I got I mean, that you, figured you out. Just, yeah, you know exactly where uh, all I got the my map. are. I got yeah. my map right. You're here. looking at a map. So I, I think you're, you're actually... We're going to talk about this more when we talk about fly tags, but sometimes it's easy to do your deworming or parasite control when you have access to the cattle, not necessarily at the right time of year. And we're saying don't indiscriminately deworm. So based on region of the country, there are some places it may make sense that you should deworm today. There are some places it may make sense later. Again, talk to, talk to your veterinarian, work out a deworming plan don't just get into a deworming habit. So this has been great discussion. We enjoyed having you with us today. And Brian, enjoyed having you on. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, or anything you'd like us to visit about on a future podcast, send us an email at bci.ksu.edu. Mm -hmm.